Welcome to Globally Minded Medicine, a podcast of quick reviews and helpful tips on medical topics, cultures, customs, and sustainable practices that are applicable at home and abroad. The opinions expressed are our own and do not represent those of our schools or our employers and are not meant for medical advice. It's just a little education and global exploration. All right, welcome back to Globally Minded Medicine, and we have a very special treat today. We have Dr. Mark Monk, who is an author of a new book that is coming out at the end of January, Urgent Calls from Distant Places, and he's had some just amazing global medicine experiences that we would like to talk about and share. Uh, Welcome, Dr. Monk. Thank you so much, Dr. Mark. Great to be here. Thanks for the invitation. So you've spent a lot of time in East Africa. Mm -hmm. Um, Tell me, how did you get involved in that in the first place? (laughs) So it's a it's a bit of a funny story. I mean, the book um, the book first of all has taken me about ten years to put together uh, you know, for various reasons. Uh, we had, we're all pretty busy, but really the the book is about my experiences as a as a young attending physician finally coming out of training after a number of years and strangely enough, just kind of hitting hitting a rut in my career. I had you know been training for such a long time when I first became an attending. I when I was in the ER and we were inundated with nonstop patients with not enough time to see them. And I just kind of, I, I hit this period of, of burnout in my in my career. And it was one of those serendipitous things that I knew somebody who knew someone who told me that there was an air ambulance service in Africa that was looking for physicians uh, to come in and spend time with them. And so I, I did a little bit of research online. I mean, really quite a short cursory search. S- saw that these guys were looking for docs and ended up signing up for two tours with them. Um, and really what the book Urgent Calls from Distant Places is about is really a narrative, short essays, about 20, 20 or 22 short essays, each of them detailing the trips and missions that I took uh, while serving as a flight surgeon on this air ambulance in East Africa with the flying AMREF flying doctor service at Nairobi. And so that's the, the book really describes those stories, but I think they're, you know, kind of plays on a, on a bunch of different levels and on some level taking 10 years to write the book. Uh, really is giving me a very interesting perspective on those stories now with a fresh set of eyes. So, you know, as a ER physician, um, I imagine burnout is uh, fairly prevalent among mm. your colleagues. Uh, how did these trips um, influence uh, that burnout that you spoke of? What what I, you know, what I quickly realized is that I really loved the subject matter of emergency medicine. Um, there's something about being there for patients really on the worst day of their lives that's very compelling. And, you know, I I had really studied for years, both initially as an EMT and a paramedic, and finally went to medical school to do this work. And when I got to the other end, what I realized was that the real problem was that the pace of emergency medicine really compounded by the way the system works, quite honestly, the way that healthcare is paid for, the lack of preventive services, the lack of primary care. Um, is is really funneling patients into the emergency room. And it leaves you literally with five or six minutes to see a patient and make quick decisions and move on, right? And there was um, kind of this depersonalization that started to take place. I found myself feeling, you know, lacking empathy for patients, frankly, and just trying to move as many charts as I could possibly move. And I, that's not good care, frankly, for patients, but it, it also wasn't good for me as a doctor. What I quickly realized was that that lack of ability to spend time with people and learn their stories and truly empathize with their situation, where they were coming from, was grinding away at me as well. And so I knew that I needed to get away. Um, And this opportunity to go to Africa for me 
was a chance really to spend time in an environment that wasn't quite as um, demanding of these short visits and squeezing as much in. And what I found on these flights was that we could spend an entire day going to say Sudan, right, or Somalia to get super sick patients, um, but that you would end up spending sometimes, you know, four or five, six hours navigating these patients through these Byzantine systems, you know, customs, uh, soldiers, uh, officialdom, uh, you name it. But you really got to learn somebody's story. And you, I really felt that I was walking away on the other side, really much richer for the experience. Yeah, that's really great. I think that's a common theme is, uh, you know, most of us go into medicine because we love people mm. and we love to serve. We want to help. And that connection that we create with patients is one of the joys of medicine. And a lot of times in, in our system, that connection is pulled away because of the demand, like mm -hmm. you mentioned. Um, and trips like this certainly can remind you about the importance of that connection, how to make that connection. And just to backtrack a bit, so Fine Doctors goes back really to the 1950s. And so the, the organization was started by uh, three idealists, uh, two, two British uh, physicians, both surgeons. One was the lead reconstructive surgeon for the British uh, military during the war and was, was quite well known for his reconstructive efforts. Um, his, he had two trainees. One was an Englishman. Uh, and the second one was an American called Tom Reese, who uh, studied uh, under this fellow um, in the UK and then came back to establish uh, really quite of a cutting edge plastic surgery practice in uh, New York City, strangely enough, and uh, but did spend most of his life um, carving out time to go back to Africa for months at a time in order to um, take Cessnas and fly sort of to airstrips and do surgery in Bush hospitals. And uh, th that was really the uh, genesis of um, the Flying Doctor Service. And what it evolved into over the years was actually really a state-of-the-art air ambulance service that was flying Citation jets and was flying Cessnas and... Um, you know, larger, larger prop planes, King Airs, uh, to really get into places that nobody else can get into. So if you if you have a life-threatening emergency in East Africa, yeah, there's a lot of air ambulance services out there. There's only one air ambulance service that's going to be able to get into that strip because they know it backwards. Uh, and that's what kind of AMREF flying doctors turned into. Um, uh, so our responsibility was to be available for emergencies as they came in. Uh, locals, you know, Ethiopians, Sudanese, Kenyans who uh, had been admitted to county hospitals or, or regional hospitals and became very sick and needed to be brought to Nairobi. That was kind of one group of patients. Um, the second group of patients tended to be the tourists who found themselves in hot water with things like malaria, um, you know, a, a lot of infectious disease. In one case, a really severe case of diabetic ketoacidosis that we responded to. And then the third bucket tended to be, um, we, had, we had a charity fund that was designed uh, for, for folks sort of also in rural areas um, uh, who, didn't, who didn't necessarily have the insurance offering. They tended to be less affluent, but the, they could certainly access the services of flying doctors as well. And so we had folks like little boys from very rural towns who were hit by cars that we brought in and um, uh, all, all free of charge as part of a charity fund. And so uh, I've kind of become one with those patients over the years. Uh, and every one of them was, was important to me and for different reasons. That, that just sounds like um, some really amazing experiences. Um, you know, in global medicine, quite often we are going out and visiting with um, these 
populations in, in low resource areas. Um, we're trying to do so in a very ethical manner. We're, we're looking at the programs we're partnering with and we're making sure we're doing it in a sustainable way, a culturally appropriate way, uh, and a very important aspect to global medicine. In your book, you actually look at a few things that you've learned in your experiences and are taking back and looking at our system and saying, you know, maybe we're not as ethical as we could be. Uh, maybe there's some ways that we could improve our system um, to give better care. Talk a little bit about uh, those insights. Yeah, yeah, no doubt. I mean, you know, one of the funny things about uh, doing this writing was, of course, that uh, going to Africa to lose yourself has become a bit of a cliche, right? It's um, everybody kind of writes about, uh, you know, eat, pray, love, people going abroad to sort of find themselves. But there is a certain truth to this. And I think um, one of the things I learned is that doing this kind of work abroad certainly benefits the people in Africa, right? You bring the skill set. One of the reasons they they love these exchange programs with doctors from Europe and from North America is that it's really just a way to exchange best practices. Um, and I was out of training and and brought brought a lot of of really the cutting edge medicine uh, to the folks in Africa and taught them. But at the same time, of course, it's not a one way transaction, right? You're 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 also at the same time, if you're doing it right, benefiting enormously from the experience through cultural exchange, through having access to people and the way they live their lives. Um, uh, you know, in one one particular case that really struck me, we were dealing with a patient who had come down with a severe infection and we were transporting him back to Nairobi. And, you know, every one of his blood labs was, you know, off the map, right? Platelets were destroyed, liver wasn't working, kidneys weren't working, sick as a dog, this guy was some, something infectious. Um, and he had started uh, hemorrhaging. Uh, he was basically bleeding from his eyes and bleeding from um, every orifice. And I remember uh, looking at the flight nurse that I was with, and I said, you know, uh, is it possible that we're dealing with the hemorrhagic virus here? Because, I mean, it's not uncommon, certainly in East Africa. They pop up every so often. Right. And of course, the the issue here is that if, in fact, it was a hemorrhagic virus like Ebola, we would then be putting a highly infectious patient in an airplane and flying him to one of the most populous cities in Africa, right? So so I didn't feel equipped to answer that question. And it, it, it was a challenge because it's nothing that medical school had ever prepared me for. I mean, if you think about this, we're, we're really taught to take care of patients one at a time, but nobody ever tells us it's okay to sacrifice a patient in the name of the public good. I mean, that's not part of the Hippocratic Oath, right? Um, mm -hmm. it's, it's okay to abandon one patient so long as you're looking out for the public health of others, right? That's not, that's not really a narrative we learned. So, so I was, I was really stuck. And I remember looking to my um, nurse, Casito, um, and uh, asking him, what do you think about this? And, you know, he said to me, listen, if we, uh, it, it, it's been, this patient's had symptoms for a long time. It's very unlikely to be Ebola virus. There really are no outbreaks of Ebola in the region. Um, and I have to, what he was basically saying was that he's much more comfortable with a higher risk profile than I ever was because he lives it every day, right? He's patients with, with hemorrhages and random tropical infections walk into his emergency department where he worked as a nurse every day. And so he, he, he brought a different perspective to it and really taught me a lot about figuring out how to manage risk profiles in un, unusual situations. Um, so that was just one example of learning, but I think you know, from on a very concrete level um, as a clinician, I think learning as a human being was a bit of a different story. I mean, I uh, 
did mention that this concept of going to Africa to lose yourself is a cliche, but of course there's a real truth to this. And I think the truth is one of the reasons people like me, probably you, love doing this kind of work is because it really forces you to push yourself outside of the daily quotidian work, your daily life, um, and really force yourself to observe other people very, very closely. And that observation oftentimes is like looking in a mirror back into yourself. Um, and it forces you to really question, what am I doing here? What do I want to be doing with myself? Does this feel like my path? And for me, Africa really forced me to ask those questions and answer those questions. At the end of the book, I, I, I really end up quoting uh, two people. One is called Doug Hammerskold, who was the second secretary general of the UN, who was a very insightful guy who had asked himself some of these questions about how you push yourself into uncomfortable and unfamiliar situations to learn much more about yourself. And the second person I quote a lot is um, Joseph Campbell, uh, so who wrote The Power of Myth. And really, much of his writing, which I read years later, because he was, you know, Joseph Campbell was kind of a popular guy in the 80s and, you know, five, 80s and 1990s. Um, uh, but Joseph Campbell really wrote a lot about um, making sure that you are living the life that you ought to be living, right? And he says that without the kind of deep introspection, it's it's very easy to lead a life that you're not supposed to be living. And you kind of find yourself down the road doing the wrong thing, you know, not not really having found yourself. Uh, so, so for me, Africa was that experience to sort of step back a little bit, create a space for to listen to myself and to sort of my inner uh, workings and um, recalibrate what I wanted to do with myself in medicine. That's really great. Um, there are just so many other um, really great lessons and insights that are going to be found in your book. Wrapping up, you know, I, I teach quite a few students that are going to be the future healthcare leaders. Uh, here in America, quite a few are interested in global health. Um, what do you hope that they will get um, out of urgent calls from distant places, out of this book? Yeah, um, I, I think what the book does is actually set up a couple of important questions for which I don't necessarily have great answers, right? I think I think the book really pushed me to answer, ask some questions, and I, I hope it pushes the reader to ask some questions as well. Some of the questions that came up, you know, should we be running a multi-million dollar aircraft with hundreds of thousands of dollars of medical equipment on board in order, in some cases, to land in a really rural county hospital. In one of the stories, we show up in a in a ward of nine patients and intubate and, and stabilize one particularly sick patient and bring him out. But of course, we leave eight others who are similarly sick, you know, in the ward. And, mm -hmm. you know, the question was really, is it, is this the right way to be spending healthcare dollars, right? If if you were sort of organizing money and resources in a different way, would it make sense to say sacrifice an air ambulance with all of the money that an air ambulance costs and instead just buy vaccines, right? Or basic antibiotics, you know? And these are sort of tough questions because I think um, depends depends who's asking and answering the question. As they say in the book, if you are the person who's laying on the the, the runway or the airstrip, having just had a massive car accident and your little boy is barely breathing, the sight of an air ambulance circling the field overhead is this really profound experience. And I think you would answer quite differently <laughs> than somebody at a much more theoretical level um, yeah. might answer. And and as I say in the book, I've got I certainly got some skepticism about large uh, bureaucratic organizations, right? I'm, I'm not entirely sure that large 
bureaucratic organizations like the United Nations or large ministries of health necessarily have all the answers for this kind of question because it's a they're very complex. And so those are some of the theoretical but very real questions that had to be answered was, I mean, should you save the money on and, and and the good news is they're still running the ambulance and they've actually won global awards. They've they've won top air ambulance service in the world uh, a couple of times. Um, they're that good. So it's it's an incredible resource for Kenya and they're doing terrific work. Um, and the nice thing about it is that they're actually subsidizing the rest of AMREF, which has now become one of the largest NGOs in Africa and is doing a lot of primary care work and infectious disease and really basic, basic healthcare uh, vaccinations and those sorts of things. And in fact, some of the resources they're bringing in through the air ambulance are are now being used to support those programs as well. So it's kind of working in a funny way. But that's just one of the questions. I think uh, the other questions to be asked are, um, you know, uh, how much do you come in as a foreigner to provide direct services versus empowering local teams to do the work? I mean, I think there's this kind of, there can be a tendency, I think, amongst Western volunteers to consider themselves as these heroes rushing in uh, to do the work. And I think um, I think what you'll find after you've spent a lot of time there is that um, many of these places are perfectly well-equipped to do the work on their own, and in fact, probably in a far better way. Um, uh, and so what Im what's imperative, I think, is to come in and basically have the humility to really ask, how can I truly be of service to these people and to this organization? And I've certainly got some skills and knowledge that I'll try to transfer. But conversely, uh, there's an enormous amount of information that I need to be transferred and that I'm learning from on a, on a regular basis. Um, and so I always be cognizant of that, of that two-way. If you're doing it right, you've got this two-way flow of information. Right. Yeah. Well, thank you so much. Um where are people going to be able to access your book? Where, where so the book's coming it? out on January 30th. It's a um, it's available both in hardcover, softcover, uh, Kindle, uh, other e-readers, and as well an audiobook if you're into audiobooks. The caveat I'll give with the audiobook is I self-narrated it, so um, <laughs> I don't know how good it's going to be, but, but some people may like it. We'll see. Uh, so it'll all be on, uh, Amazon and pretty much at any bookstore. You can order it, um, Barnes and Noble, you know, your local bookseller will have access to it as well. Wonderful. Well, we look forward to that coming out. Um, we want to thank Dr. Mark Monk for coming on to Globally Minded Medicine. And we were just so excited to have you. Thank you so much. It's been a delight. Thanks for having me, Dr. Mark. Terrific. And with that, we'll close saying that if you too answer those urgent calls from distant places, you might be globally minded. Stay globally minded, my friends. <laughs>